0: Let's turn in the scriptures to Habakkuk. We're almost at the end of the Old Testament, and this is a little book, just two or three pages, depending on your edition of the scriptures. We have been discovering some of the glorious gems, the priceless gems of who our God is, in a cave as it were, a hidden cave that not many people go into, that is, the minor prophets. Jesus would have known this section of Scripture as simply the Twelve. That's the name of the section in the Hebrew Bible, the Twelve, or sometimes called the Book of the Twelve. These books reveal so powerfully, so clearly, the faithful and jealous love of God, Or the restoring power of God to restore what the locusts have eaten, as Joel saw it. They highlight God's exacting justice against Nineveh and also his willingness, his readiness to relent in his judgment against them if they'll just repent. We see the justice of God and the grace of God. These are just gems tucked away in this hidden cave. Today, we're studying the message of Habakkuk, maybe one of the hardest minor prophets to pronounce. And frankly, we probably don't pronounce it rightly. If you're a Hebrew speaker, a native Hebrew speaker, you'd probably say it Habakkuk, Habakkuk. If you're an American cowboy, you say Habakkuk, Habakkuk. That's how all of us Westerners say it. We get it totally wrong. Habakkuk, right? (laughs) That's how I'm going to pronounce it this morning. (laughs) Habakkuk preached God's message long after the days of David and Solomon. That was way in the rearview mirror. He preached his message long after the nation had split into two, divided into northern and southern kingdoms. In fact, he preached his message quite a long time, almost a hundred years after the northern kingdom had been decimated by Assyria. He's preaching just a few years before the southern kingdom is decimated by Babylon. He preached at the same time as Jeremiah. Of course, Jeremiah is a major prophet because Jeremiah writes a much longer book. Major and minor are only descriptions of length. And he probably was preaching to a young Daniel in Jerusalem. Daniel probably would have been about 10 years old when Habakkuk finished his work. Daniel, just a few years later, would be taken as the first round of slaves into Babylon. That's Habakkuk. That's who he's preaching to. That's when he's preaching. And this morning, I want to read portions as we work our way through this minor prophet. And then I'm going to end with four massive ways that this little book should shape our lives. Habakkuk actually has two parts. If you look at the first verse, it's the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. Then if you just glance over, might be a page later in your Bible at chapter three, verse one, you'll see chapter three, verse one, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, according to Shigyonoth. Shigyanoth is a musical term and probably Uh, was maybe a a term for a a certain vocal style or maybe a tune that it would have been sung to. You'll notice if you look at the very last phrase of the book, after chapter 3, verse 19, Habakkuk dedicates this, as it were, or gives it to the choir master and says it's to be performed with stringed instruments. So, the first two chapters are an oracle, or we might say a sermon declaring the word of the Lord. The third chapter is a song. He's a songwriter. Look back at chapter one. Right out of the gate, verse two Habakkuk weeps. Oh Lord, how long shall I cry to you for help and you won't hear? Or cry to you, violence and you won't save? Why do you make me watch all the iniquity around me? And why do you just idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. The idea is wherever I look, I'm seeing injustice. Strife and contention arise. So the law appears to be paralyzed. And justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, or they outnumber the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. Everything looks unjust to me in the world around me. Now Habakkuk is frustrated because he's seen injustice in his own nation. He would have lived right at the end of the reign of good King Josiah, who experienced a recovery of the law. But Josiah made a stupid decision in battle. He was killed by the Egyptian army. And right after him comes His wicked son Jehoahaz is an idolater. He rules for three months and then is deposed by Egypt who's now ruling over over Israel. And Egypt puts in Jehoahaz's place his older brother who's also a wicked guy named Jehoiakim. So Israel is being led by wicked people and Israel is being decimated by even more wicked people. The Egyptians. Yeah, I mean... Israel might have its idolatry problems, but God, how are you letting Egypt attack Israel? I mean, justice, where is it? God, where are you? So Habakkuk is lamenting, and he's pouring out his complaint to God, and God answers Habakkuk beginning in verse 5, and God's answer actually adds to Habakkuk's frustration. Look among the nations and see, wonder, be astonished, for I'm doing a work in your days that you'd not believe if anyone else told you. For behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans. That's the term for those coming from Babylon. It's the ethnic term for those coming from Babylon, the army of Babylon or Nebuchadnezzar. I'm raising up Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, that, that bitterly cruel nation, we might say who march through the breadth of the earth to seize property that doesn't belong to them. And then the Lord continues to describe how wicked these Chaldeans are. So Habakkuk, verse 12, he says, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die, shall we? O Lord, you've ordained them as a judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. But you're of purer eyes than to see evil, and you cannot look at wrong. Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up those who are more righteous than he? Habakkuk basically asks God, how is it right for you to punish one nation for their sin using a nation that's even worse? And he finishes his questions, and in chapter 2, verse 1, awaits God's answer. The Lord replies in chapter 2, verse 2. Look at God's answer. He says, write the vision, Habakkuk, I'm about to give you. Make it plain on tablets, so that he who reads it might run and spread it abroad. The one who reads it can publish it. For still, the vision, or what God has said will happen, awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie, or it will not prove false. If it seems slow, wait for it. I could hardly sing a few minutes ago as we were saying still my soul be still wait upon the Lord wait for it it will surely come it will not delay behold the person whose soul is puffed up it's not upright within him but the righteous shall live by his faith And the rest of the chapter is God's pronouncement of five woes. You might want to count them or circle the word woe if it's translated that way in the the Bible you're using. You'll see the first one in verse 6, the first woe. Woe to the people who plunder other nations. They're going to be plundered. That will happen to Babylon a century later. The second woe comes in verse 9. God says, woe to the one who builds massive houses with evil gain. The third comes in verse 12. God says, Woe to him who builds a town with violence. And look at what the Lord announces in verse 13. Essentially, as one translation puts it, the wealth of the nations is going to be turned to ashes. That's exactly what happened to Babylon. It was left in a heap of ruins. They think they're all great now. It's going to be emptiness in just a few years. Because, verse 14... The earth is going to be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, just like the waters completely cover the sea. That's where all history is going. The fourth and fifth woes come in verse 15 and then in verse 19. Verse 15, woe to those who force others to drink their violence. And verse 19, woe to those who worship idols. So even though God is using Babylon to decimate Jerusalem, They too, the Babylonians too, are going to face God's judgment, his just judgment. That's the first oracle or the sermon in chapters 1 to 2. Now we move to the song. Chapter 3 verse 2, Oh Lord, I've heard the report of you and your work. He's just heard God's message and is responding to it with this song He says, O Lord, your work I fear. In the midst of these bleak years, revive your work. Show your power. In the midst of these years, make your power known. And in your just wrath, remember mercy. As you are showing the power of your justice, remember to be compassionate. Then Habakkuk sings through the bulk of chapter 3 about his certainty that God will win. He describes that the whole earth is going to shake when the judge puts his foot on the ground. Verse 12, he says, You, God, marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. Chapter 3, verse 13, You went out for the salvation of your people. So Habakkuk knows that the Lord himself is going to come to earth and bring justice on it. But he knows that for right now, and this is the, the hard thing. This is the, this is the painful thing about Habakkuk. He knows what's going to happen. But for right now, he has to live with injustice. Look at how he ends. He has to keep enduring injustice. Verse 16. I hear what's coming. My body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flocks be cut off from the folds, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I'm going to rejoice in the Lord. I'm going to choose to rejoice in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, He's my strength. And he makes my feet like the deer. He makes me tread upon my high places. So, despite the fact that Habakkuk's life is going to end, we might say, in the bleakness of Israel's total decimation and Babylon's domination, it's going to be that bleak, he commits himself to rejoicing in God's promises. God, I know you, and I know you what you've said will happen, and I am going to keep my eyes fixed on that and rejoice in you. Wow. He pictures himself like a deer on the side of a treacherous mountain. Everything around him is bleak and unsafe. And yet he is able to stand tall and unafraid, even joyful. Because of God's promises regarding the future, and because of God's character, he can fulfill every one of his promises. He says, I'm like a stable deer in a treacherous mountainside. Wow! Does this shape your vision for reality? For how you should live as you approach this year? I hope it does. Habakkuk's primary concern... His primary concern is with God's justice. To him, it seems like everything's unjust, that the worst people are the most powerful. And his main message is this, even though injustice is everywhere now, God will eventually bring justice on earth. And right now, he calls everyone to live with faith, faith in his promises, waiting with joy till he fulfills every promise. Even though injustice is everywhere now, God will eventually bring justice on earth. And right now he calls everyone to live with faith, faith in his promises, and wait with joy till he fulfills all of them. It's the powerful message of Habakkuk. And it should shape our lives. It should shape our our lives in at least four ways. And I'm going to bring those out. And with each one, I'm going to highlight one statement of Habakkuk that I pray you'll always associate with this prophet. And you'll get grounded, deeply rooted in it. Four ways that Habakkuk should shape our lives. The first is this. Conviction. We must live with the conviction that God will be glorified on earth. This is faith's conviction. At the heart of Habakkuk are these woes, these five woes, and the center one, the third of five, the center of the woes is there in verses 12, 13, and 14, where the Lord assures us, That the whole earth is going to be completely saturated with an understanding of the glory of the Lord, just like the waters cover the sea. The curse on this planet is going to be gone. Death will be no more, and every person alive will be enthralled with God. They'll be in awe of his beauty in awe of his greatness, in awe of his justice, in awe of his love. This anticipates the time of, we would say, the new creation, when Jesus returns and makes all things new. After he returns, he's going to judge his enemies with a rod of iron, and he is going to remake creation to be free of the fall. As one of my pastors used to say, That's the destination that all of history is moving toward like a freight train. Nothing's going to stop that. That's faith's conviction. The whole earth is going to be covered with an enthrallment with God's glory. Just like the waters cover the sea. That's the destination toward which all of history is moving like a freight train. Now, there's a book on the history of missions, history of missions during the 1700s. I read it because of uh, my studies in David Brainerd, one of the early American missionaries to the Native Americans in this country. The title of the book is called, As the Waters Cover the Sea, because this reality has driven missions for centuries One missions writer, George Peters, in his book, A Biblical Theology of Missions, puts it like this. The Bible predicts the eventual and complete annihilation of all other systems of religious thought. The worship of all other gods. And it anticipates the ultimate and complete triumph of the worship and the service of the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says the Bible looks to a time when the one true God will be accepted and honored as the sole Lord of the universe. Boldly, he says, the prophets forecast that the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Such a note of complete triumph and absolute victory is upheld by no other religion in the world. Thus, he says, the Bible is a book which begins with absolute monotheism. That means the Bible begins in its first statement with, there is one God, in the beginning God. And the Bible also ends in absolute monotheism. He says, in the beginning God, and in the end God. This is what drove missionaries to live Spreading the gospel because this is where history is going. We must live in keeping with it. All of us need to live with this conviction, faith's conviction, that the whole earth is going to be covered with an enthrallment with God, just like the waters cover the sea. Second way Habakkuk should affect us is crying, faith's crying. We can and should cry out to God with all of our frustrations. Habakkuk says in his very first exclamation, Oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? This is, I think, what's most distinctive about Habakkuk among the prophets, is the openness of his struggle with God. He cries to the Lord. He complains before the Lord. Lord, what you're doing makes no sense to me. It doesn't seem right. Now, Habakkuk is... is distinctive in this way among the prophets but he's not distinctive in this way in the scriptures you can think of many others who've wrestled with the problem of evil like job like david like asaph and many others it is actually healthy for us as god's people as christians as those who are trusting in the lord it is healthy for us to be honest with god about our struggles and our frustrations it does no good to try to suppress them because God knows our hearts. We're just... (laughs) Do we think we're going to fool God with what we're struggling with in our hearts? We're not. And furthermore, you, if you have trusted in God, trusted in what he's done to give Jesus so that you could be reconciled to him, do you think a little complaining is going to shake your relationship? Your relationship is strong enough. It can handle frustrations. Nothing's going to separate you from his love. Don't think that you opening up to God about your frustrations is going to somehow make him say, oh, I want you out of my house. No, your relationship's stronger than that. And the model of scriptures, the model of Habakkuk is, bring your complaints and your cries to the Lord. Wait on him for answers. This is a good and godly thing to do. The problem of evil, why a good God would allow evil in this world, and evil even to be prevalent in this world, is not a new problem. And Christians should be people who struggle with it. If you don't struggle with it, You're not like the godly people who went before you like Habakkuk. It is a struggle. There's no way of getting around it. It's hard. And the problem of evil should not drive you away from God. It should drive you to God. Like we've been singing this morning, Psalm 131. Like a weaned child... God, I'm hungry. I want answers. But I'm going to be quiet and I'm going to be still because I can trust you even though you haven't given them yet. Habakkuk teaches us to complain, to cry before God, to take our struggles to him. Third, faith's constancy. We must continually trust God day by day and never ever stop. Look again at Habakkuk 2, 3, and 4. That is Habakkuk 2, chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. This is where God tells Habakkuk, everything I've promised is certainly going to happen on my timetable according to my schedule. None of it's going to be postponed or rain-checked or delayed. It's all going to happen exactly like I've set out. And he says, if you are right before me, Your life will be centered on faith from beginning to end. The righteous, the just, shall live by faith. The Christian life is faith beginning to end. Trusting in God's promises. We are proud, by contrast. That's how he sets it up in verse 4. The proud think, no God, you have to do what I want when I want. But the righteous, those who are right with God, live by faith. You might say the proud live by doubts and demands. God, I can't trust you. I prayed for this and you did this. You're arrogant if you think that way. The just shall live by faith. That's what Habakkuk preaches. And it is impossible to state just how significant this passage is. The best way to highlight its importance is actually to show how Jesus' apostles used it. It's the most quoted statement of Habakkuk in the New Testament. I'm going to point out just three references. There's another one in Peter as well. Paul, in Galatians and much more famously in Romans, contrasts two ways of trying to be reconciled to God. One, you try to work for it. You try to earn a relationship with God you obey God's law and God likes you because you're an obedient person and he contrasts that with trusting what God has done for you through Jesus the gospel, trusting the gospel and he brings this passage up twice to show that in the Old Testament and the New the way you're right with God is the same you trust him You don't try to earn his favor with your obedience and your works. You trust what he's done for you through Jesus. We are not rescued from God's judgment by doing anything, but rather by trusting what Jesus has done for us when he died for us, rose again for us. We trust what God has done in clearing our sins through Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. The writer to the Hebrews then quotes Habakkuk 2:4 in Hebrews 10. That's a passage where he is actually challenging these suffering Christians to endure. You might remember from our studies in Hebrews that these are Jewish Christians who when they followed Jesus, they basically lost everything. They lost the respect of their community, they got kicked out of their homes in many cases, they were actually forced to run far from home. They lived as refugees. And they're sitting there asking, is following Jesus worth it? And the whole letter to the Hebrews is saying, don't give up on trusting Jesus. Keep following him. Keep trusting him. And he really reaches his climax here in in chapter 10, where he says, Don't stop living by faith. No, God said, my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, if he stops believing, if he throws in the towel, God says, my soul has no pleasure in him. God says, essentially, if you turn your back on following me, I will reject you as proud, as someone who thinks you know better, you know a better way to life than I've provided And then Hebrews chapter 11, right after this statement, is like a long riff on that word by faith, that phrase by faith. You want to talk about living by faith? Look at Noah. You want to talk about living by faith? Look at Abraham. You want to talk about living by faith? Look at Moses. You want to talk about living by faith? Look at Rahab. Look at all these people who live by faith. No matter how hard it gets, keep living by faith. That's the message of the Hebrews. And he quotes Habakkuk. Have you been given the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus? Or are you here this morning and you say, I'm trying to earn God's liking of me. If I just be a better person this year, then God will like me. The message of Habakkuk, the message of Paul, stop. Don't try to earn A relationship with God. Trust what God has done for you in Jesus. The just shall live by faith. Trust Jesus. I'm calling you this morning. Doesn't matter whether you've lived for 20 years or for 40 years or for for 80 years. Doesn't matter how old you are. I am calling you to turn from the way you're relating to God. It's not through coming to church it's not through saying you know what i've been married a long time god counts that for something it's not by saying yeah i've gone and i've had communion a lot you don't relate to god on the basis of works the just shall live by faith you relate to god by trusting in what he's done for you through jesus would you wherever you're at however old you are Whatever religious tradition or irreligious tradition you come out of, can I call you to step off a works way of being right with God onto a faith way of being right with God? Will you stop trusting yourself and trust Jesus? The just shall live by faith. And some of you here have been trusting Jesus maybe for five or ten years. And your life is awful right now. You're kind of like the Hebrews. You're doing a lot of crying. And you're doing a lot of expressing of frustrations to God. You're saying, God, I thought that you would help me. I thought that you would bless me. I thought you would make my life better. And you are thinking about throwing in the towel, about shrinking back. And I'm calling you this morning to endure The just shall live by faith. You started the Christian life by faith, finish it by faith. Don't give up now even though the way is hard. Fourth way that Habakkuk's message should shape our lives is with contentment. Deeply connected with that application I just ended on. We can be content, even happy, with God's promises. Despite all of today's problems, Habakkuk says, even though the fig tree doesn't blossom, I will rejoice in God, my Savior. This is where Habakkuk ends, and this is where I want to end. Whether my life gets any better or not, I need to say, God, I'm going to rejoice in you. I'm going to rejoice in you, God, no matter what happens tomorrow one of the most influential pastors in my life had this passage from Habakkuk, Habakkuk 3, 17, 18, and 19, read at his wedding. Even though the fig tree doesn't blossom, we're going to rejoice in God. And he and his wife had it read as a way of saying, we know that marriage is going to be difficult and that there are no guarantees for God's blessings on our lives. But no matter how hard our married life gets, we're going to find our joy in God and we're never going to turn back. Marriage is such a profound picture of our relationship with God. I want to state the picture and then come back to our relationship with God. So many people approach their relationship to God like they approach their marriage relationship. One guy put it in a popular movie that came out a few years ago. At weddings, everyone says for better or for worse, when most people only ever mean for better. Marriages today are grounded. You can look at statistics that show this over and over. They are grounded so much more in personal fulfillment than they are in in permanent commitment. And so many religious people throughout history and today approach their relationship with God the same way. I'll be committed to God if he gives me everything I want, but if he ruins my life, if he makes my life hard, I'm going to become bitter, I'm going to become joyless. I may even walk away from him, throw in the towel completely. I love God if he loves me, if he does things that I want, when I want. And Habakkuk provides us with a way of approaching God that is completely different. It's not for what we get out of him. It's for what we find in him. Habakkuk gives us a model of contentment in God that should shape our lives. Did you know that you can choose joy in God even when there is no hope for you in this life? Even when you are facing the worst of diagnoses at the doctor's office? Even when you go back to an empty home, you can have joy in God. Our God is that great. He's that good. He can ground us with joy even when we've got nothing on the horizon, the immediate horizon to be happy in. Tri-County, will you choose that today? Will you choose to rejoice in God today whether or not the fig tree blossoms? Will you commit to him for better, for worse? And not just for better? If you'll do that, you will fulfill the purpose for which you're made. You'll glorify God by rejoicing in him above all. Let's pray. Well, oh, Father, Father, Teach us this joy in you and in your promises. Shape our lives with Habakkuk's message that you gave him. Teach us, Lord, the conviction we should live with. Teach us to complain before you. Teach us, Lord, to continue to be constant in our faith from beginning to end. We walk by faith and not by sight. And Lord, teach us to be content even when our circumstances are bleak. May we glorify you, Lord. Shape us with this message. In Jesus' name, amen.